was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to present part two of my conversation with the legendary Austin Pendleton. In this interview, he discusses many of his later projects, including Waiting for Godot with Sam Waterston, Grand Hotel, Spoils of War, What's Up Doc, Choir Boy, and more, as well as his upcoming Broadway shows The Minutes and Between Riverside and Crazy. So, without further ado, the inimitable Austin Pendleton. Hi. Hi. It's so nice to see you again. Oh, are you working on a show right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm in this play in Cleveland. We we, oh. clo- uh, uh, we close tomorrow afternoon, and then on Tuesday night, I'm, I'm flying back to New York. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah so you know, yeah. It's, it's been a wonderful time. This, this oh. did, did, did I tell you what the play was? Oh, no. Not last time. It's a play by Neil Simon called Broadway Bound. Oh, I love that play. Yeah. Oh, 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 you know that play. Yes, yes, I do. Yeah, I think it's my favorite of his plays. And, and I'm a fan of his plays. Oh, me too. I've read all of them. I have all the books of his. Yeah, he was not a fan of mine. Oh, I mean, I mean, he was perfectly, perfectly friendly when we would meet, you know, run into each other at a restaurant or something. But but he fought very hard to keep me out of any play he ever wrote. Oh, even as a replacement, you know, a year into the run, he, when 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 the director would have gone ahead and had gone ahead and hired me, he said he he intervened and said no, no way. Oh, so um, so I I keep feeling I felt all through this run if the estate finds out that play they're going to descend on us and do cease and desist or something but they haven't so yeah yeah well i'd love to um restart by asking you about about where we left off last time which was with you doing good time charlie and how did that sort of come about how how did it come about well let's see the director was peter hunt who was a very good friend of mine and who had I'd been to college with and we we worked a lot both up at the Williamstown Theater Festival. Do you know what that is? Yes, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, and that was uh the the um the theater festival was run for years, for its first um, number of years, 30-some years, by a Greek man named Nikos Sakharopoulos. And um so I went there as an apprentice, and Peter went there as an Peter Hunt went there as an apprentice, and then um, and then I went as into the, in in the non-equity company, and Peter was up there working as a lighting designer that that summer, I think. And then uh, we began to get directing assignments from Nikos. So frequently in the same season there would be a show I directed, 
and, a, and then another show that Peter directed. So we knew each other pretty well. And um, he passed um, this past spring. And he had Parkinson's and, and he passed. And, and the, um, but, but I'm trying to make this as simple as possible. In my last two years at Yale, the dramat, the extracurricular drama group, it wasn't the drama school or anything like that. Although people, some, some of the women from the drama school would come and act in our shows. Um, the, the dramat every spring would put on an original musical. And in my freshman and sophomore years, the, the musicals were both by Richard Mulpey and David Shire. Do you know who they are? Yeah. They, they were new original musicals by Mulpey and Shire. And then after Mulpey and Shire graduated, then I wrote the scripts for each of the two um, for, for junior and senior year. And um, um, the... Um, in my, in, in my senior year, the composer that they, they selected me for, because the composer, my junior year was a senior and I graduated. They then assigned me with this brilliant young composer who's steadily not kept up with his composing because he's really brilliant. And I said, what do you want to, uh, what would you like to write about? And he said, well, I'd like to write, um, something set in mid 19th century America. And I would like the music to be a combination, this is a quote, of Stephen Foster and Kurt Weill. And I thought, well, now that is fascinating. That's fascinating. And, and then, um, so, and I said, where in America? He said, all over. I said, well, that's either gypsies or actors. And I know more about actors, you know. So I had read a book, a biography of the great 19th century actor, Edwin Booth, who in his early years traveled with his crazy alcoholic father, who was a great actor and sort of looked after him and tried to keep him from drinking. And, 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 um, 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 and a very complex relationship. And he also adored his father and his father adored him, but his father was impossibly difficult. So I said to this composer, Jim Massengale, uh, why don't you read, just read the first 60 pages of this biography of Edwin Booth. And that, that's pretty, and then at page 60 or so, the father dies and you go on to the rest of his life. But um, see what you think. He said, well, this sounds interesting. So I began to um, I began to work on it. In fact, I got a program where I could. It, it, it was called um, the Scholar of the House program, where you could you could drop out of a um, a classroom thing and you could work on some project. And I proposed it to the Scholar of the House program. They said, "Fine, sounds interesting." And we were going to use the music in a very original way. The songs were going to be like as if they were songs from the period that these people would just encounter. And so, I mean, it's supposed to be being character songs and so forth. So we did it and it was such a long show that we never had a run through until opening night. And the opening night was really going smashingly. And the, um, 
And then about halfway through act two, my, the guy who wrote the lyrics, this guy named, named Peter Bergman was pacing back and forth and at the back. And I was at the back of the house and he said, I have bad news for you. And I said, what? He said, it's quarter to 12. And we, and we, um, and we still have easily half an hour to go. And um, so I thought, oh, but then I noticed that nobody had walked out. It was that night and the subsequent run is really one of the most exciting experiences I ever had in the theater. So I then just became obsessed. And then in the fall, Jim, Jim uh, Massengale, no, I got a letter from his parents. He was an only child in, in St. Louis saying, Jim experiences great difficulty with the collaborative process and doesn't want to work on this anymore. We, his parents, we thought that the show was terrific. The first act was particularly wonderful. The second act, not quite as much. Part of what was tonally exciting about it was the tone of the show shifted radically during the intermission. But that was one of the things I loved about it, you know. And, and again, people would come and nobody ever walked out. So I thought, oh boy, there is so something huge here. So after Jim, I went to a different composer and lyricist whom I knew. The composer was someone who Jim had fired from being the musical director of this. So that was sort of a provocative move. And, and um, so we set about writing a whole new version of it. And um, so, um, um, and then it just sort of, it dragged on for a few years. Then Peter Hunt, who I told you about, um, said that there was a program that they were doing in the little theater at Lincoln Center, called, which was then called the New House, the one underneath the Vivian Beaumont. And it was called the New House then. And um, where three Monday nights, you can put on a, a a new musical, like a workshop of a new unit, but with people, people having learned their lines and everything and so on. And um, he said, could we do that? Could I direct it? So I, I wrote, um, um, I said, sure, yeah. So I did one more pass on the script and we did this, we did this reading of it, those three Monday nights in, in the new house downstairs at Lincoln Center. And it was very well received. People were very excited by it. And for an infinite variety of reasons, it, it, it never quite moved beyond that, but it did move finally. Some years later, I just decided to write it as a play. And that was done off Broadway with starring Frank Langella as the father. And that was well received. And again, it never really moved anywhere. Although the, and then the play was published and the play is done, you know, not, not as often as the other two plays I wrote, partly because it has a larger cast. And, and um, um, but it was very exciting writing it. And then like, like originally, and then Peter in his direct, so Jerome Robbins, you know, so he came to see it with a, with a woman who had been my girlfriend, but we'd kind of broken up, but, but we were still friends. So he was very impressed by it. And he, um, 
And he was very impressed with Peter Hunt's work. So he recommended Peter Hunt to the producer of the then forthcoming musical called 1776. And he said to that producer, I've seen the work of a guy who I think could really handle this material because it's basically very dramatic material with songs in it. And um, so Peter got 1776 and he won the Tony for it. And it won the Tony as best musical. And um, it, you know, it was a huge hit. Then he directed the movie, which is quite a beautiful movie, except that the year it came out, the producer was Jack Warner. He was no longer producing at Warner Brothers. He, he, it, was, it, was an, it was another studio that he, he produced this for. And Jack Warner, just before it opened, cut to ribbons. I'd seen the uncut version. I thought it was st really stunning. And, 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 and so he, he cut it to ribbons and it got very bad reviews. And it, for a long time, well, it more or less permanently killed Peter's future career as a film director. Um, I mean, he, he did a lot of television and some theater. But anyway, so um, a few years after, um, after 1776, he was directing the show, show Good Time Charlie and, and, and Joel Gray was, Gray was the lead. And um, I think Peter wanted, wanted me to play the lead, but, but, but Joel Gray was a, a big name. And so he sort of quietly, shyly said, would you understudy Joel? And I knew Joel a bit, you know. And I said, sure. And I'd never understood. I called my agent and said, well, you agreed to what? You agreed to be an understudy? This isn't going to look good. And I said, well, no, but I just want to. And then she said, okay, I'll negotiate it. And then um, I really loved that. First of all, I, I came in as per contract the first day of the third week of rehearsal in New York before it went to Boston. And Joel had a, a tiny dressing room just off the rehearsal room. And he called me in and he said, look, I've understudied. I, I know the whole gig. If ever you have any problems or questions, you want to ask me about how to, how, how to, how to deal with this. Um, just come and ask very generous. And I said, well, and, and if I do, I will, but I, but, but I won't do it unless it's a, a problem I cannot find the answer to, which never happened. <coughs> then once we opened in Boston, we opened Boston to catastrophic reviews. I mean, the headline of the Boston Globe was a, a, a numbing mediocrity and all kinds of things like that. And Joel would start to make demands that Peter and... And Peter, Peter brought in a new book writer, Peter Stone, that they, they didn't agree with. And then he said, well, if you, if you don't meet these demands, I'll, I won't play next weekend, which was, and he was the, he was the name that was bringing in the tickets, bringing tickets. And then he thought for a minute, but wait, if I don't play it, Austin will play it. And Joel told me a year after this whole show, he said, you know, you should have played that part. It just would have worked better. He got a Tony nomination. I mean, he was wonderful. And so I had a very good time. It's wonderful 
being an understudy in a musical in trouble out of town, you see all the changes and all the things that go on. And I, I, it took me a week to learn his dance steps because for him, they weren't that complicated, but for me, they were hugely complicated. So I learned them all, whereupon they fired the choreographer. <laughs> so I had to learn a whole new set of, of, of dance steps. Um, but through all this, Joel was supportive. Then after it opened, uh, it got mixed reviews and Joel got, he got excellent reviews. And so then they realized that if, 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 if Joel was ever out, they would simply cancel that performance because um, they would lose a lot of revenue, you know. And so then they, they told me I no longer had the job. I, I understood that was fine. It was it, a lot more fun being the standby when, this, when it was out of town. But, but once I was in New York and I had my life to lead and all that, understudy rehearsals once a week and so on, um, it was irksome having to check in every night and, and, and all that. And um, so I, I wasn't, and, if, and then when, when they let me go, which they sort of had to do, that freed me to do some other things I really wanted to do. So anyway, that you ask it's a simple question. So that's the whole long epic saga. Peter Hunt was the reason I did accepted the understudy job in that show. You mentioned uh, one of the plays that you've written, and I'd love to ask you about one of the others, which was about Orson Welles. And so what was your own interaction like with him? And how did you sort of come to write this? Well, well, I've, uh, the three th the three plays I've written, then in addition to that, I've written a libretto for a couple of musicals. But the three plays were um, uh, the Booth play, simply called Booth, Uncle Bob, and Orson Shadow. Orson Shadow was a thought that was given to me, not a commission, but an idea by a woman named Judith Aubergenois husband of the actor Rene Aubergineau who died about a year ago. And I'd known the Aubergineau for years. We'd been in ACT together in San Francisco. And then when we were all back in New York, we would hang out, you know, and so forth. And, and then I acted in a season at the Brooklyn Academy of Music with Rene. It was a, a company at Brooklyn Academy of Music started by the British director, uh, uh, Frank Dunlop. And who invited me into it and also invited Renee and some other good American actors. And the first season we did Three Sisters, which went very, very, very well. I did very, very well in the reviews for that. I mean, really well. Probably the best reviews I ever got in New York. And, and um, that impelled Frank Dunlop to cast me in, this, in the second season, again, of three plays, very, very, um, to really stretch me. Like I played Mark Antony in Julius Caesar, which is not a part that anyone, and it got predictably mixed reviews. Um, some reviews said he's miscast, but he's really kind of exciting. Others said, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and then the third play, you know, the play called Waiting for Godot by Sandra Berger. Okay. While we were doing that season, the, the, the the, um, the first season that had three sisters in it. The German company 
a German company waiting for Godot, which had been directed by Beckett, came to Brooklyn Academy of Music. I was unable to see it because I was in the other show. Of, of the Beckett, the production Beckett had directed of Waiting for Godot. And um, I've never read a better review of anything in my life. So, so, and so, and so Frank Dunlop had the idea that next season, we will do Waiting for Godot and we'll get Samuel Beckett over to direct it. Um, now I had played that part as part of Estragon um, when I was in college and it was the one that, really made me definitively decide to pursue a professional career. It like went really well for me. And it was a glorious experience. So I thought, boy, being directed by, by Sam. But then Samuel Beckett the following year, which was the year of Judy's, which, which was the second and last year of the company as it turned out. First, we learned that Samuel, Samuel Beckett refused to come to America, but he sent his assistant, his very faithful assistant, a German guy called Walter Asmos, who I liked a lot, but Walter was there to deliver the Beckett directions. And apparently when Beckett himself would direct, he was so exacting with actors about every line reading, every facial expression, every cross and every, everything like that. Actors who adored him and revered him would go mad and start pounding their heads on the floor. So, so poor Walter Asmos was asked to do this with me and Sam Waterston, and and um, and he was it was very and it began from day one. And I mean, line readings. No, you walked eight steps just now. The cross is only six steps, or something like that. Um, facial expressions, literally. And and um, wait, I can see your eyeballs moving when when you're when you're saying, I don't want to see, I mean, really going mad. And it was this terrifying rehearsal process. And finally, I, um, the night of the first preview came and I took a nap on the cot, the equity cot after rehearsal. And then they came to wake me up at 7.30. I was wide awake, but I just pretended to be asleep. I just played possum. I said, if I don't wake up, I don't have to do the show. I was that frightened. I've never been that frightened of going on stage. I had no idea what I was doing. It was like, um, and it's in this play that had got me into acting in the first place. And I, I said in an interview, this is the play that got me into acting. It's, I guess it's going to be the one that'll get me out of it too. But they, they made me go down and do it. And we sort of did it. It didn't go well for me at all. Some of the comments in the audience were more interested in it than I would thought. I sort of took that in, but I thought they're just, they're being nice or they're crazy. Then we had an opening night and the next morning I was talking to my agent on the phone, lady, my Jewish mother, um, um, Deborah Coleman, wonderful lady. And we were talking about some appointment for a film or something like that. And suddenly she broke down in tears saying, we can't not talk about it. And I said, what? She said, the review in the time she meant. And I said, well, I take it it's not that good. Oh, dear, promise me, don't read it. Don't read it. And then I set foot outside the door of our apartment and a friend from across the hall was coming out from her apartment and she recoiled when she saw me. I said, no, no, I've heard about it. Don't worry, don't worry. I mean, I thought this must really be humongous. 
So then that afternoon, like a year and a half before I directed a production in Chicago of the Shaw play called, called Miss Alliance. And one of the actors in that was the actress um, Lynn Redgrave, uh -oh. who I'd been in a movie with a few years before and we'd become friends. And so she had, I think she even won a Jeff Award for it in Chicago. The production itself won a Jeff Award. Everything uh, won a Jeff Award. And it was a huge hit. So producers had been angling to get it. It, it never did come into New York. But that afternoon of the day, the review of Godot came out, Lynn and I had a meeting with, um, with a theater that was interested in bringing it in. And then she said, before you go to Brooklyn, can we go to the Russian tea room and get some soup or something? So we did. And she said, okay, I read the review. And she gave me this very sweet lecture about what to do. She said, now in London, a review like this, and some of the, I mean, she said like my father would get reviews like this. Her father was Sir Michael Redgrave. Um, and John and Ralph, meaning those people, Sir John Gilgood and Ralph Richardson, they would get reviews like this, but it was always, and then she said her tone dripping with edge. She said, of course that never happened to Larry. He never got bad reviews. <laughs> she said it with a sort of ice in her voice. But she said, Joan and Ralph would get them and my father would, but it was always understood they would be on stage the next season in London. She said, New York is very unlike, a, New York is very unforgiving of a review like this. And you might not get a mainstream acting job in New York in seven years. She was down right, right. She was, she was correct down to the exact number seven. So she said, my advice to you is just act wherever you can, out of town, regionally, or in little showcases here. Just keep acting. Because sooner or later, they will come around back to you. And, and, um, and, and you don't want to be out of practice. And I had my classes to teach and all that kind of thing. So, and, and I worked out of town at Williamstown primarily. And, and um, um, I, um, I did a couple of showcases and, I, um, and the uh, two or three maybe even demanding roles. And so then finally they came back around in seven years and I got a Broadway show. And Lynn, who had not been able to attend the opening night, came to the opening night party to make sure that everything was all right. And the reviews had just come in and they were good. So, but she, she was, she, so Lynn Redgrave, that was a very important conversation we had. It shaped a lot of my future as an actor that you don't ever depend on anything like that. And therefore you create all the work you can. If somebody invites you to do something in an attic somewhere, you go and do it and so on and so forth. And I got a huge directing job during those, those seven years with Elizabeth Taylor, you know. And, um, and by a fluke, I got involved with the Steppenwolf Company, which I, I'd never even heard of, but I had a play that was playing off Broadway. Um, called Say Goodnight Gracie. And it, 
played off Broadway for quite a while and, and was, was doing pretty well. And um, f- a funny, interesting play. And a Chicago producer saw it. So the New York producer and the Chicago producer and I met, met the Chicago producer after the performance. Um, a couple had come into New York and seen it and that couple reported him back in Chicago, you have to see this. So he made, called, a, called a meeting with Wayne and, and, and with my wife who was very pregnant. In fact, she started to give birth 20 hours later and uh, to Audrey, our child, who's now a surgeon, by the way. And so Wayne said, you can have the Chicago rights if you hire Austin to direct it. And I started kicking Wayne under the table. I don't want to go direct it in Chicago. <laughs> I mean, I, we're about to have a baby. I'm very happy with the New York production. I, I you know, and so then Audrey was born. And the following day, when it got to be night and, and the visiting hours were over, I went over to Wayne's house and I said, Wayne, I'm just not going. We have this wonderful kid now and I'm just not going. He said, well, I've kept this play open for a number of months, which has done you no harm at all. You're going. I said, okay, I'll, I'll go out there, rehearse them for two weeks, teach them the New York blocking and come home. He said, fine, however you want to do it. So then I went out to audition them and I, for one of the roles I had to, I'd never heard of any of these people. I had, for one of the roles I had to choose between Joan Allen and Laurie Metcalf. <laughs> I'd never heard, and I kept thinking, these people, they are talented. So I finally put together this cast and I went out there and we read through it a couple of times and, and they were good. I, I liked them. Then the first blocking rehearsal, which was an evening rehearsal, they would rehearse in the evenings in those because all of them had day jobs. John Malkovich was a school bus driver, for example, without giving me much amusement. And, and they, um, but they, a lot of them had, you know, they had day jobs. So we'd rehearse in the evening. The first evening we were rehearsing and I was blocking it. There was such wild kind of life going on stage between these people that I just threw away the book. And I staged a whole different production. And then that became the first popular big hit of Steppenwolf. They already had quite a following from certain really brilliant productions they'd done before that. But this was the first one, I mean, it, it had to move from one theater to another, it ran so long as that. It, it won a lot of Jeffs. It, it, it sort of put me on the map in Chicago. And so every, and soon after that, they be, began to ask me to direct some other shows and then finally to act in some shows, at which point they then just officially invited me into the ensemble. So all that came from that, from that, from the dark period after the 1978 review of In the Times of Godot. Now, what happened with Godot was I just thought we had three weeks left to run and I just thought I can't. Finally, the following Tuesday night, I thought during the first act, well, I'm, 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 I'm listening to Sam Waterston. I said, you know what, tonight I'm going to quit. I have a very talented understudy. I'm sure everyone will be relieved if I quit. I'm abusing this play, which is one of my favorite plays ever. Um, I'm just going to quit. And so I sat in the 
and we all in the same dressing room. I sat in the in the dressing room, very serene and calm, all during the 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 intermission. Saying, got an hour left to go, and then this torment is over. So I went downstairs, and the second act suddenly came to me. I was suddenly totally able to do it fully. I think it's the most exciting hour I've ever spent on a stage. A thing I'd given up on just suddenly came to life. And so I obviously I didn't withdraw. And it wasn't my imagination. The stage manager left up on the stage afterwards and said, what happened? He was very excited, you know. And then people began to come, like Arthur Copen, my friend, you know, he came, he started bringing, bringing groups to it. I mean, groups of his friends. And other people had a similar reaction to it. And therefore the rest of the run was thrilling. And, um, um, but it, it was like, you had to do exactly what Walter had given us. And I was so sad that Walter wasn't there to see that. And because I'd gotten very, we'd all gotten very, very friendly with Walter as the previous approach and everything, even though we were very contentious during rehearsals. I climbed to the, to, to, to a ladder attached to the wall in the playing space but that we were also going to perform and climbed to the top of it one day and said, if you give me one more direction, I'm going to jump. It was like that. Sam got so mad once he lift up a fire extinguisher and was about to bring it crashing down on Walter's head. So Walter was, was, was dealing with that by playing the melodrama of being terrified. And I was trying to, to defuse Sam by holding on to Sam and playing a melodrama, Sam, Sam, think of your children and all that. But Sam was furious. Finally, we kept it from smashing a fire extinguisher on Walter's head. But, but in the final weekend before, the weekend of the previews and stuff, we, we would go out with Walter and have long talks about Europe and Europe still being under the trauma of, of World War II, particularly Germany, even though Germany had recovered, but still just the trauma of it. And, and got to know him better. And, and I really love the guy. I do wonder what's ever become of him. Um, and Peter Hunt, when we did it at Yale, had played Pazzo, breathtakingly, just breathtakingly. And Sam had actually played Lucky. And when we first got into New York and Sam began to have a great success, he, was, he would get interviews and he would talk about how my performance in Godot was a thing that really inspired him to go into acting. Now, 18 years later or whatever, 20 years later, he's watching me work on the same role and totally paralyzed and falling apart. So it made it even worse. My partner, Tramp, was one who had been so inspired by the good performance I'd given 20 years before. It was, it was like endlessly humiliating, the whole thing. And, and um, but, but Sam was very, very you know, he was steadfast and he was, and, um, but then all of a sudden, as I say, it came, but it came, and this is the important part, once I had definitively decided to leave the show. And um, even though I had a contract, I knew that everyone would be relieved. And then there it was. I went downstairs and there it was. And then I thought, well, what, what, if, what if I'm in trouble again tomorrow night? But I wasn't. And for the rest of the run, it was this great experience.
Oh, yeah. And I told, after that, I made the Muppet movie. And I was telling the director about it. He said, well, it sounds like it was because you had to do exactly the crosses and exactly the steps and exactly the, it sounds like it was a, a variation on, on Tai Chi. You had been resisting it as people sometimes first do with Tai Chi, but then you surrendered to it. And in, in Tai Chi, it means the, the movements create you. They create your feelings. They create your sense of release. And you finally just surrendered to it. And I thought that was a very perceptive analogy that he made. And um, um, he, he, he just died recently, that, that director, um, Jim Frawley. But um, so anyway, oh, oh, the Orson Welles play. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Judith O'Bergenois, who she, I was in LA and she asked me to come over for breakfast one morning. And she said to me, I have an idea. And I said, what? She said, in 1960, Orson Welles directed Laurence Olivier in the play Rhinoceros by UNESCO. And but by the time the play opened, Orson was no longer the director. Would you write a play about this? And I said, well, let me think about it. And I thought, I don't want to write a play about people that people can rent. You, you know, I mean, it's like, and, and so the, obviously the two biggest roles would be Orson and Olivier. And then, uh, but just the night before somebody had given me a copy of the big biography of Orson Welles by, I think, I think by, by Simon Callow that had just come out about, it was volume one that took him through the making of Citizen Kane. And so I had that book. It, just, it had just been given to me because somebody who was a director, two different sent. people had sent him the book. So I was already his place in LA. And he said, would you like one of these? And I said, sure. So now two days later, Judith O'Brien. Then I was in a movie called Trial and Error. And we were filming upstate California a couple of hours. And I was sitting in one of those big chairs you sit in while you wait for the, And I looked down and there in the dust in this little town was a paperback of the autobiography of Laurence Olivier. So I thought, okay, this is approaching some kind of compromise. Maybe I should start to look into this. So I began to look into it and I, did, I, I read all the books and I took, decided to add the character of Vivian Lee because it was during that time he was breaking up with, with Vivian Lee to go with Joan Plowright. So I'll put in Vivian Lee and Joan Plowright and the critic Kenneth Tynan, who will be kind of a chorus to the play and also a character in it. So I thought, and then I, I threw in a young guy who'd be the stage manager. And it took me, I would write and write and write. It took me a very long time to find the structure of it. Finally, I did. And, um, then the word got out and, they, and I got an email from, from, from the literary manager at Steppenwolf. By this point, I'd been in Steppenwolf for a few years saying, I hear you've written a new play. We're interested in reading that because we'd done Uncle Bob at Steppenwolf and that had, gone, that had caused quite a stir. So I said, well, yeah, but this is not that good at this point. I mean, even though I'd found the structure and everything, it's not, it just isn't that, it's not as good as Uncle Bob. She said, well, would you let me be the judge of that? 
I said, well, yeah, maybe I'll send it to you. And that night I walked the dog. We had a dog then. I walked the dog very late. And in the course of that walk, I thought of the title, Orson Shadow. And I thought, well, wait, that must mean part of me is still interested in it. So I sent it to Steppenwolf in the days when you sent it in the mail. And um, I heard right back from them, we're going to do it next winter in the garage, which is their small space. And I said, really? I said, it needs work. And they said, well, okay, work on it. It's now May, it's now whatever. And we wouldn't go into rehearsal until December, but okay, work on it. So I worked on it all summer some more and I sent them the new version. And they preferred the new version of the old one, but there were certain things they preferred in the old version. So I said, well, we can negotiate that, that's fine. And then they called the artistic director then Stephen Wolf's great woman by the name of Martha Levy, L-A-V-E-Y. And she'd been artistic director for some years, very thoughtful woman, also an actress, a good one. So I went out, there, there was a reading of it. The playwright of Sacred Night Gracie happened to be there when that reading was. And he, he sent me an email by this point saying, okay, this is gonna be your first big, big hit. I thought, they're all crazy, but okay. Then Martha called me and said, I've got a director. Would you talk to him and see if you're interested? And that was, that was David Cromer whom I'd never heard of. So I called him up and five minutes into the conversation, I thought, oh no, uh, yeah, yeah. But I thought, well, I can't just make it a five minute conversation. So we, so we gossiped essentially for an hour. But then I called Martha right back and said, yeah, I want that school, that he would be great. So that's how I got to know David Cromer. And then, um, um, we opened and it was a big, big hit in Chicago. And everybody wanted, um, all these producers were interested in bringing it in. But no producer would agree to having Cromer directed. Now, in Chicago, while we were doing Orson Shadow there, the actress, you know, um, 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 Cherry Jones. Oh, yes. Who, who is a friend of mine. She was there. And we had breakfast one day. And I told her, I told her, she said, listen, I've been in shows that really worked out of town. Then they decided to move it into New York and they changed the cast. They changed, and they changed the cast around me and everything. And it doesn't work anymore. Don't let them do that to you. And I, and I said, I, I've, I've already thought that's the position I'm gonna take, but, but thank you for reaffirming it this strongly. And um, so then for five years, for four years, it went on no producer would consent to and sometimes and i would tell them it has to be chrome and then they would actually go and offer to another director without telling me one of whom was a friend of mine who was the son of orson wells and geraldine fitzgerald called called michael lindsey hogg and we were friendly i'd auditioned for a couple of plays he directed and stuff and i was very good friends with geraldine fitzgerald and um and the producer i said to him why did I, so I had to tell him on the phone, actually the job's already taken. He basically has never spoken to me again. So I said to the producer, it was an old friend of mine, don't do this. He said, you mean you really meant that about Cromer? I said, yeah. 
Yes, I did. I, you know. Um, so finally, I went to see a play by Tracy Letts once, who's also a member of Steppenwolf. And um, the producer came out of the box office, it was off Broadway, and said, he had a lease on the theater, Scott Murphy, and he said, Tracy tells me you have this play that, is, that he really likes. Um, could I read it? So he read it. He said, I, I like this. I said, he said, now tell me, are you serious about this Cromer thing? I said, um, yeah. Let's put it this way. If you don't hire David Cromer to direct this, I will sulk. You really want that to happen. He said, oh, that scares the shit out of me. You know? So then he, Cromer put together a reading in Chicago. This producer flew out, he came back. He said, oh, Cromer's directing. We can use the original cast. Um, and we go into rehearsal in a month. So all of a sudden it was all settled. And then um, the one actor who couldn't come was the actor playing Kenneth Tynan because he had commitments and family stuff or whatever. So Tracy offered to play Kenneth Tynan to replace the actor who couldn't come, but all all the other all the other five actors were the same. And it opened and it ran for almost a year, and began to be done all over the country. And again, it got published. And um, so um, the one that has the longest legs that just keeps being done all the time is Uncle Bob. Partly because it's a two-character play, but partly it still intrigues people. I mean, Orson Shadow had that year after the the year in New York where when the play's been a hit, it gets done all over the country in different companies. And that's fun. They fly you around to see the different versions. And I saw some very good versions, none that in directorial terms approached Cromer's approach. And so that began the career of David Cromer. And he would say, um, I had selflessly um, you know, fought for him. I said, it wasn't selflessly, I was trying to protect my play. You know, it wasn't a noble gesture. When you find the, just like Cherry Jones said, if you find the director who's right for the show, stick with that director and, and, um, and stick as much as possible with the other actors. So that all was a happy ending and so forth. So you've done a lot of work on screen as well as on stage. And I'd love to ask about your uh, two films that you did with Barbara Streisand, What's Up Doc, and then The Mirror Has Two Faces. Yeah. Oh, I love her. I loved her both times. She was fun. I loved, she's wonderful to act with. I mean, like if you do, they do the close, if I'm talking to her and they do the close up on her, and she's brilliant. And then they turn the close up on you and she's beside the camera feeding you the lines. She plays it equally fully then when she's off camera. So you can really get from her what you need. And um, she's funny, she's determined, she's ambitious in all the right ways. Um, and I like her a lot. I, I never had a bad moment with her. And you also worked with uh, Woody Allen on Don't Drink the Water. Yeah. I'd love to ask you about him and that movie. He, he was great. I, I don't exactly know why he decided to resuscitate that material, because his material, since that play was first written, had soared to such new heights. But he did, I guess, just for the fun. And it's not a bad, it's a funny script. 
you know, and and um, he and then he he was playing the part that that another actor had played on Broadway twenty years before, or even thirty years before, something like that. And um, Woody, you're playing a scene with him, and without missing a beat, he says that light is out of focus. And so within the life of the scene that you think, oh, that's a line in the scene. And, but he somehow can be totally engaged in a scene and become aware of something like that and stop. And which kind of stunned me. Yeah. And, but uh, I loved working with him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I loved working with him. And then he put me in another movie in which I had, an, uh, I was virtually an extra. But I happily took it because I just like being around him, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I'd love to ask you too about uh, the front page, which you did with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthauen. That's right. And Carol Burnett. Yeah, it, it was directed by it was directed by Billy Wilder. Uh oh. And he he was terrific. He was just so gentle, and he was that wonderful combination of gentle and. Um, demanding all at the same time, which is, you know, is, is the balancing act that, that, that any director should strive for. And, but some of them don't carry it off. They either get too exclusively general or too exclusively demanding. And it, go, it can go off the rails, you know. But no, he was right on. And I liked him a lot. And Jack and Walter, were, they were very supportive. They were very nice. And, and Carol Burnett and I became really good friends on it. We played Scrabble a lot on, on, on the set, you know. She hated her own performance. <laughs> Once when it was being shown on a plane, a few months after it came out, she took the thing from the stewardess and told the, the passengers on the flight, I apologize for the movie you're about to see and my, particularly for my performance in it. So she was, she's a lot of fun. Then she's since then, you know, had a major tragedy in her life. Yeah. Yeah. And so that there's that. And um, but yeah. yeah, it was a good experience. Oh, yes. Yeah. And you worked with, I believe, Orson Welles himself on Catch 22. Catch 22, yeah. What he was you? impossible. <laughs> he was literally impossible. He was on it for two weeks. So I was on it for two weeks. And he made Mike Nichols' life hell. He kept he kept redirecting the scenes and making it clear that if his directions weren't followed, he would blow every line. I mean, he was like, certain scenes are not as funny as they were when, as directed by Mike. Orson didn't ruin them exactly, but certainly took away a lot of their comic effectiveness. And. Um, and there also that was the two weeks when all the press was down on that set because it was two weeks Orson Welles was there. And I spoke a little indiscreetly about um, Orson to some of the press. And then it was printed, you know. And, but, but so then what happened after that, I went back to New York and I began to see a whole bunch of his late films, which were showing in the revival houses that I'd only ever seen in Citizen Kane. And I saw the Magnificent Ambersons, which blew me. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Oh, blew me away. And A Touch of Evil, which was brilliant. And some of the some of the Shakespeare films. And I thought, these are as good as Citizen Kane. I see why he would, I began to see why he was so frustrated and angry and everything. 
And so then when Judith Obergemal asked me to write this play, um, I thought I've got, uh, Orson had been dead for 10 years by that time, but I thought I've got to make it up to him somehow. So I'll try to draw a compassionate picture of Orson Welles. On Broadway, you um, replaced in the in Grand Hotel with Tommy Toon and all those great people. And I'd love to ask about that experience and how that happened. That was thrilling. Well, first of all, I'd been offered the part when it first uh -huh. was done. And it, that was just when Nikos had died at Williamstown. And a whole lot of us were thinking we have to now try to hold the theater together the first summer after he's not there because he died. He died in January of 19... 1979, I get, no, 1989. He died in, in January. So we, so three of us agreed to run the summer that, the theater that summer, of the summer of 1990. And I owed so much to Williamstown and to Nikos and everything. I thought I can't just take on a Broadway show. So I turned it down. And then, um, then and then who they got was Michael Jeter who was astonishing in it. And, and I mean, his acting was like out of Chekhov. And, and, his, and then that dance number, Michael Jeter had one of those, one of the bodies, those, those bodies that's made out of rubber. I mean, he could just do anything. So Tommy staged his big number around that particular capacity. And it was it's just a great number. And so then at one point, Michael was gonna be away for a couple of weeks. And so they asked me to come in for that, just that two weeks. So I went and no, I said I couldn't do that two weeks, but then they said, come in and audition for after Michael leaves, after the Tonys. And I went in and, and then I started to work with the assistant choreographer on that number, which is gonna be weeks of work because I mean, I'm not essentially a dancer in the way that Michael was. And um, so I was starting with that. And, Tommy Toon walked across the back of the theater at one point. And then my agent said, um, they've withdrawn the offer. And I couldn't figure out why. I thought, I mean, I'd gotten the part. But I thought, okay, whatever, whatever. Karmically, I'm not meant to have this role. And then like way later, almost the end of the run, as it turned out, the guy who had replaced Michael, who had been a student of mine, a very talented guy named Chip Zion. Um, he was leaving, so they asked me again, and this time they just flat out offered me the part, but they never told Tommy, who, who was on tour acting in Bye Bye Bird, a revival of Bye Bye Birdie. And I kept saying, does Tommy know about this? And they would evade the question. And um, I, so I went in on my birthday in 19, in 1992, I went in and I, I aced the number and everything. And we'd hardly ever rehearsed any of the scenes because all the rehearsals were involved in that number. And the assistant uh, came backstage and went rather cross at the end. She said, you, you were paraphrasing some of your lines tonight. I said, well, you don't understand. I'm a dancer, I'm not an actor. But she retreated and, and amused uh, uh, confusion about that. But then, of course, I got the lines perfectly. It was wonderful. I, and I, was, I went in in April or May, and I was going to be in it all summer. But then they closed. 
The first week I went in, the box office dropped $70,000. I, I like to think that was just a coincidence. Mm. And a show um, uh, that you directed on Broadway that we haven't talked about yet is Spoils of War with yeah. Alice Playton and... Yeah, and, and Kate Nelligan, who, who played the lead. And it's a play by Mike Weller, my friend, you know, Michael Weller. And I, he'd, he'd sent me the script and I'd given him some suggestions about the script. That led him to offer to me to direct. I directed, first time I met him was I directed a play of his in Steppenwolf, his play called Loose Ends. It was the first play they asked me to direct after, after Sega Night Gracie at Steppenwolf. And it had quite a success. And so, the, and he came out and saw that. And then we, ever since then, we've, we've really been good friends. Yes. Yeah. And I'd love to ask about a show you did that I believe closed on the road, which was the revival of Finian's Rainbow. Yes. I don't quite know why it closed on the road. I, I never got a really good answer for that. It was, it was doing very well on the road. And I don't know, some, maybe something happened about the rights or something like that, because it was an odd structure. Um, we, played in, in, uh, we played in Miami Beach, in, in Coconut Grove, and then we played in Cleveland here. <laughs> and then, um, and then we had several months off, and then we were going to open on Broadway. And a good friend of mine, Lonnie Price, was the director. Um, then I decided to quit the show because I thought other things were coming up that interested me more. And, 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 and Lonnie was very hurt that I pulled up. But if I'd waited a day, the whole production then fell apart the next day. And I, I, I never really got an explanation for it. Lonnie had brought in, again, Peter Stone to, to rewrite the book, the guy from 1776. And Peter gave it this real edge, all, you know, all, uh, considering all the, the uh, racial questions and everything. He, he gave it some real edge. And um, there, so there may have been things about the rights. There may have been like the original writers said, no, you can't bring this new script to Broadway or something like that because they had been complaining about that when it was in Florida. Wait, who told you you could yeah. just, you know, have a new playwright come in? So there's, I would guess that was it, although I, had, I, I, I never really pursued it. I never really asked why, yeah. And you made a um, triumphant return to Broadway very recently in Choir Boy, and how did that sort of come about? Oh, fine. We'd, we'd done it first in 2013 in the, in the little theater at Manhattan Theater Club. And it was, it was well received. So then they decided to bring it back in what this would have been 2018-19 in their big theater at Manhattan Theater Club, their, um, their, their Broadway house. And um, it, um, some of the cast was changed, but some of us were the same. It, it was well received. I think it got like a nomination for best play or something like that. And I think it got a couple of other nominations. I'm not sure. And for and and it sold out. I mean, in addition to the subscribers, it sold out. And and I thought, I wonder if they're going to 
to, to move it to another Broadway theater. But I think they weren't quite sure what the volume of sales would be. And, and a move from one theater to another on Broadway is violently expensive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And how do you think, I'd be curious, that Broadway has changed between when you started in the 60s and up till now? There used to be a lot more new work on Broadway. That's the main change. And there used to be more new musicals on Broadway. And now there's a heavier preponderance of revivals, particularly revivals if they can find a name, which I totally understand. I mean, they got to keep the doors open, you know. So the content of what's on Broadway is the main change. And sometimes there's a, I mean, like I think this year for the best musical or something, there was only one nominee or something like that. And, and, um, and, and also it's very hard to get the temperature of Broadway right now because of the attempts to reopen after COVID. And you, you may have heard that in one of the shows they had to close down because several tested in the cast tested positive, but now I think it was Aladdin and now they're, they're reopening it again. But it's a very tricky time now to open on Broadway. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the play I'm in is going to come back in the spring. That's great, that's great. And what I'd be curious to know what your sort of experience was like with working on that and then having Broadway shut down. And Oh, well, first of all, this is a terrible thing to say, but it was kind of a relief. I mean, it closed down. Uh, I, mean, I mean, the lockdown happened three days before our opening night. We'd already had two over two weeks of previews. And Anna Shapiro had really been working on it very hard during the previews. And, and, and she's good friends with Tracy Lett. She directed August Osage County. And, uh, and Tracy was in the show. He was playing a very important role in the show. So she would rehearse this every day. And people were, I think, concerned about the shift in tone in it, which is shocking to how to really make that work. And she would, she didn't act, Tracy didn't actually do any rewrites of any scenes. She didn't ask for those. She's finding the playing of it and the staging of it. But then she finally, it's a tail on head on Tuesday night. And we thought, well, is that a fluke or is it, you know? And so we did the two shows on Wednesday and the same thing. So it seemed like it's holding now, it's holding. Then Thursday morning was the lockdown. So um, I'm interested to see uh, if Tracy's done any work on the script because the country's changed so much in the last year and a half. But maybe because part of the point that he, the satirical point that he makes in the play is that it's a, it's a mid-sized town, the city council. So many of the issues they, they come up, that they discuss in the meeting, the city council meeting are hilariously irrelevant. So he may just, just simply stay with that. In fact, that might be even funnier now. And, some, and somebody said, if you change in the staging that they don't shake each other's hand, they, they bump fists, that would be an acknowledgement of it, but the only one, you know. Yeah. And, and um, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, Army Hammer can't be in it again because of the scandal, which is, we're all sad that he won't be in it. Yeah. And I'd love to ask if it's all right about two more projects that you're going to be working on. Sure. After the quarantine. The first is um, at the theater for the new city. You're going to be doing The Dark Outside. 
Yes, that's right. Yeah, we we go to rehearsal next week. Oh. Yeah, and I've been learning my lines for it out here. It's it's very complex, demanding lines. It's by a British playwright by the name of Bernard Copps, K-O-P-S, who's about to have his 95th birthday. And he wrote this play like a couple of years ago. And it's a good play. It's a very strong, interesting play. And I play effectively him in it. But he's very, I love it when a playwright writes autobiographically and the character who's the author is treated very objectively. You know, it, the play isn't just meant to be in a, an apologia for the playwright. Yeah. I'm like, I'm a wonderful person and everybody else is against me is the content of some autobiographical plays. Yeah. And the other show you're doing um, on Broadway in 2022, you've had a long history with, which is Between Riverside and Crazy. Oh, yeah, I directed it um, at second, but so I directed it, so I'm gonna say 2015, 2016. It started at the Atlantic Theater and it was a hugely well-received play in the fall. And then it moved in the winter, a few weeks after it closed the Atlantic to second stage but the off-Broadway version of Second Stage, which is on 8th Avenue and 43rd Street, but, but going west, so on the, on the west side of 8th Avenue. It's a short walk from there to their Broadway house, which is on 44th Street between 8th and 7th. But it's a Broadway show now. It's got the same cast, and um, as far as I know, the same script. And uh, I loved doing it before. And I, I love the actors, all of whom are back. I love Stephen Adley Gurgis. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. That's, that starts rehearsals about a year from now. Yeah. And I'd love to ask you just um, one last question, which is after and during such a legendary career, um, what is some advice that you would give to somebody just starting out? Be open to anything. Don't make a plan because the industry exists to defeat people's plans. Even after they become big stars, the industry is so volatile and so unpredictable and so many factors enter into everything. Don't make a plan. Just um, try to get your equity card as soon as you can. Now, I'm told equity is taking just about anybody now because they're having income problems. But, but try, to, try to get into actor's equity. And then every time you see a thing for an EPA, in other, in other words, an equity principal audition, go to it. Prepare a number of monologues. Now, and I don't just mean, a monologue means you're alone on stage, but the term is used very loosely. But it can be any long speech in a scene with somebody and you just make very specific who you're talking to. You kind of look at a thing on the wall behind, above the heads of the auditors, or if it's in a theater out at the balcony railing at a very particular thing. And you try to achieve an objective with that thing you're looking at. That keeps you utterly focused. I've, I've found that people respond particularly strongly to monologues and auditions, or what are called monologues, you I mean speeches. Um, when they actually believe, the auditors actually believe the other person was in the room. Yeah. 
So that's that's a piece of advice. But just hit those EPAs relentlessly. Oh yeah. Yeah. And 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 but and as I say, prepare a number of monologues. Because sometimes people come in and they've prepared like one monologue. And and the directors or somebody says, Do you have anything else? And they have to say no. Well, first of all, that's a black mark against you right away. So you're not really serious about this. You don't have a, a lot of monologues working. And so be very flexible with those. Or they might like to see a different kind of monologue. So if you work on a couple of dark plays, a couple of comedies, a couple of this, a couple of that, and you have them all primed and ready to go every time you go in, that's good. Also, when you're working on a, a monologue or a long speech, read the whole play. Sometimes people come in, they have a long speech from a play, and you can tell they don't even know what happens in the play. They're just connecting with these exact words. But they, the, the audition appears to be devoid of circumstance. And um, um, so those are three of the huge things. People don't know how to audition with sufficient preparation these days. One, one actress came in once with, do you know the Arthur Miller play After the Fall? Yes, yeah. And the whole second act is about the disintegration of his marriage to Marilyn Monroe. But she has one scene in the first act. So this young woman came in and um, did with a reader the, the scene in the first act, which is a charming little scene. And she said, there's one thing I, I, I don't understand about. Um, um, she refers to being in some trouble. I, what's, what's the trouble? And I said, well, read the second, you, you, you've read the second act. I said, she said, oh, there's a second act. Almost the whole part is in the second act. And, and that's stupid. I thought, I'm going to write this girl off. She, I mean, she's working on this part and she hadn't even looked at all the scenes that are, the other scenes that are devoted to that character in detail. You know, so that, that's a thing to avoid. Oh, yes. People can spot, even if they don't know the material you're doing, they can spot an unexplored monologue. Yeah, that's that's my advice. Thank you so much for doing this interview. It's been an honor to talk to you. Thank you. you. And to you too. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when I am joined by one of Broadway's best character actors, the great Stephen DeRosa. Stephen DeRosa starred as the baker in the 2002 revival of Into the Woods and has continued to grace Broadway stages with performances in shows such as On the Town, Gary, The Nance, Hairspray, The Man Who Came to Dinner, 20th Century, Betrayal, and more. On screen, you may have seen him in Boardwalk Empire, Cafe Society, Sleeping with the Fishes, Younger, Ugly Betty, and more. He also starred off-Broadway in the hit Mystery of Irma Vep, plus the It Girl, Walmartopia, Measure for Measure, Love's Fire, and more, and went on the road with Hairspray and West Side Story. He can currently be seen at New World Stages Off-Broadway in The Alchemist, a new version of Ben Johnson's rowdy comedy, which I highly recommend. So make sure to come back next week for that, and thanks for listening.